gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So one of the funny things about having a podcast of sermons is that I know that for the past two Sundays, our priest associate and one of our seminarians, Mary Hegarty, began their sermons by making fun of me. For assigning them to preach. The Pentecost, fire from on high, the Trinity, difficult doctrine. Uh, They claimed that I had assigned them difficult texts. Well, there's some truth to their claims. It's good to be rector. (laughs) I, I did very much enjoy assigning those texts, but more so I enjoyed having some time away some time with our partners at Cristosal in El Salvador, and then some time for vacation. We all need a little time away. And I'm glad that both Mary Hegarty and Mark were willing to tackle difficult texts in my absence. It's good to share the wealth of weirdness in the Bible. And today's lessons give us two pretty weird images as well. The two very different images of people who are alone. Elijah the Tishbite, the prophet, finds himself on the run from Ahab and Jezebel. He hides in the cave at Mount Horeb, God's mountain. Then in the gospel, a man from the town of the Gerasenes inhabits the tombs outside the village because his seizures make him unfit to live with the other villagers. Both of these characters have been driven out from society. Both are alone, terribly alone. We know a thing or two about terrible loneliness, social scientists tell us. Even in our own day when we are supposedly more connected than ever. Smartphones in our pockets constantly tell us when someone has liked a Facebook post Our notifications tell us who is emailing, the score of the game, when the deadline is coming, what the president has tweeted. Are we richer for the connection? We've gone from a society where a precious few were constantly on call, doctors, policemen, firemen, uh, to a world of smartphone owners who are never free from their work. A few years ago, my younger sister taught me how to change the settings on my phone so that I have to go in and actively check my email. It doesn't just pop up. In her words, I'd rather check my email than have my email check me. Yet even with all the connectivity, sociologists tell us, the feelings of loneliness are reaching epidemic levels. Professor Sherry Turkle from MIT describes our world as alone together. Alone together. Our constant connection only makes room for shallow relationship. We never connect at the roots, at the depths. And many of us are left feeling lonely, even with a thousand friends on social media. In our new strange loneliness, What could Elijah, the prophet, and this possessed man from Jairus possibly teach us? Can these strange texts be useful in our own day? If I didn't think so, I probably would not have come back from vacation. Let's begin with this strange character who's left out among the tombs. 
The haunted figure in Luke's gospel is particularly compelling. The text tells us he's been naked for a while, having torn off his clothes in a fit. He breaks through the chains that his fellow citizens use to restrain him. He rushes out to the wilderness. This character terrifies the other villagers. And yet, and yet, Jesus sees through the terror. Jesus knows this person, knows him deeply. Jesus knows this man better than his neighbors know him. Jesus knows this person better than the possessed person knows himself. And so we can understand his request at the end of the story. Once he's been clothed and is, is, and is in his right mind, the man who has been healed wants to stay with the healer. He wants to follow Jesus, to stay nearby the one person who saw him when no one else could, the one person who helped him return to himself. We can understand that desire. But Jesus isn't done healing. Yes, the demons have been cast out, but the healing isn't done. The healing isn't just about him. The Gerasenes need healing too. The village needs to receive their sibling, to reconcile. Return home and tell the story of what God has done, Jesus tells him. The healing isn't done until the relationships have been restored and deepened. The healing isn't done until the community is whole, until the one they have cast out is seen and known and embraced and has an equitable place in the society. Healing is more than personal. Healing is social. Healing is relational. Jesus' healing gives us back to one another. It says something in our day. We are so torn apart in this country, around our world. We are so torn apart, we don't even know where to begin. Our smartphones and televisions constantly feed us a diet of outrage, the latest quotes from the hated other. We unfollow and silence and avoid the folks with whom we disagree, and we continue to build silos. Now, the usual place for me to go next rhetorically would be to talk about both sides. Conservatives and liberals, we both build silos. Both sides isolate themselves. We don't know where to start because Republicans and Democrats don't know how to come together. It's all partisan. I'm not preaching that sermon today. The brokenness is more complex. The both sides are wrong. The argument feels good, feels balanced, but I'm not sure the balance really works out that way. Instead, Instead of focusing on some pretty picture of national politics and people coming together, I want to get local, dangerously local, as dangerously local as Jezebel and Ahab got with Elijah. The Tishbite prophet, the famous Elijah, is alone this morning, facing death threats from the rulers, from the police state. Elijah runs scared and finds himself alone on God's mountain. Elijah dared to question the injustices in his city from his city government. And so he is out in the desert, the wilderness, because the city wasn't safe for him anymore. I thought about Elijah and the safety of our city this week as I heard the news about next Sunday's Pride March. 
want to use what's going on with our Pride March as an example, as a local example. If you have not heard, the Pride March encountered controversy. Not because religious groups are planning to protest, it wasn't that usual story. Last week, the Pride organization, at the request of city officials and certain members of the gay community, reversed their original decision about the police participation in the event. Armed police officers will be allowed to march in their uniforms, alongside the handful of churches like ours who choose to march, alongside the nonprofits and advocacy organizations, alongside the Home Depot and all the other corporate sponsors. I heard from a number of friends who were glad that the officers were being allowed to march. We need to stand together, they said. People are coming together. It seemed like a good decision. Before the decision, I had heard a great deal of anger about the Pride Board's initial decision. On Twitter, local friends, gay and straight, mostly white men, but some women, were outraged. How could Pride exclude the police? Friends on Facebook, the local news, even the mayor of St. Louis characterized the situation as one of exclusion. The police shouldn't be discriminated against. And folks brought rhetorical fire. Fire is dangerous, and fire is attractive. Elijah knew. The prophet found himself in the wilderness in a cave, and God said, go out and stand at the mountain. The Lord is going to pass by. So Elijah witnesses as a wind so powerful that rocks are breaking comes by. Elijah looks for God in that powerful wind, but God wasn't in the wind. An earthquake came. Surely only God could shake the very ground, but God wasn't in the earthquake. Then the fire raged. This must be God, Elijah thought. But God wasn't in the fire. Finally comes a sound, as our translation this morning has it. Thin, quiet. God was there all along a still, small voice. Elijah learned we have to be careful with fire. Fire is attractive. We have a habit of turning all of our political discourse up to 11, past the max. Every injustice is extreme. Every decision is a calamity. Our local community suffers from our fire sometimes. The police are being excluded. How will our city heal? The language chosen these past days was often extreme. Our news alerts have, always, have us always ready to be outraged. In the middle of the controversy, I was impressed by the leadership of Sayer Johnson. Now, Sayer is a co-founder and serves as the executive director of the Missouri Trans Umbrella Group, MTUG. As Sayer presented at Theology on Tap earlier this month, if you didn't hear it, do yourself a favor. Listen to our podcast online. We're hoping to work more with Sayer and with MTUG in the coming months as Holy Communion is working to deepen our ties to the trans community. In an interview with NPR last week, Sayer's words struck me because Sayer's words didn't break rocks or shake the ground. Sayer talked about the anger and the betrayal felt by the trans community at the reversal of the Pride Board's decision. 
But Sayer talked gently. He said, we have a strange relationship at best and a hurtful relationship at worst with the police. Sayer didn't bring the fire. He talked about a missed opportunity. And Sayer could have talked about how 50 years ago in New York, the first pride was a riot, a riot against police violence led by trans folk, mostly trans women of color. Sayer could have cited recent abuses of the trans community at the hands of police. Sayer could have said, if the police are there, MTUG can't be. But Sayer didn't choose fire. In Sayer's mind, it was simpler. This wasn't about intentionally excluding anyone. This was about t-shirts, literally about t-shirts. You see, Pride didn't say that police officers weren't allowed to march. The Pride Board didn't bar the LGBTQ plus police organization or the police department itself from sponsoring a contingent. They simply said that officers walking in the march should not walk with their guns, should not march in uniform. Officers were invited to march unarmed in police department t-shirts. That invitation to march in t-shirts was met with fire and brimstone, characterized as a decision that police officers were not being allowed to participate. Sayer said the fight to allow uniformed armed police, that decision, Sayer said, was an opportunity wasted. Notice the gentle words. An opportunity wasted. Sayer went on. It would have been such a gracious gift for the St. Louis Police Department to say, we hear you and we see you and you're right, we have hurt you. And this year we're going to take a step back and we're going to center you. That didn't mean not marching, Sayer said just marching without their guns and uniforms. This intense local controversy, I see in it an example. And as we as a church get ready for the march, I keep asking myself, what would healing look like? Where could God act? I have a sense we don't need more fire. God often acts in ways that seem small. My guess is that healing would start quietly. Perhaps some of the officers in the police contingent could choose to march without their guns, to march without their uniforms. Maybe a few officers could choose to wear their badge, maybe their jaunty police caps, but to wear them while wearing an MTUG t-shirt. Could you imagine police officers making that choice? Could you imagine what that choice would be saying to the trans community if they showed up in an MTUG t-shirt? We're a church that puts a lot of stock in symbols, a lot of stock in symbol, a symbolic communication. What would it mean if the, some of the police officers made that choice? I wonder if it could be a new starting place. And for those with power, for those entrusted with safeguarding the community, could it mean choosing to listen to those who do not feel safe, who are often the most isolated? I offer this as an example. 
As I prayed through the news of our local Pride March these past weeks, as I held those news stories alongside the stories of Scripture, I became more and more convinced God's healing presence won't come through more fire, more earthquakes. God's healing will be slow and patient and frustrating work. There will be backward steps. And our strange scripture tells us this has always been the case. In today's lessons, we encounter two strange stories of unchosen loneliness. Two biblical characters who are cast out. If I had been thinking ahead, I might have assigned these to somebody else. But yet, these two cast out characters are met by God. God surprises them, surprises us. Healing loneliness is difficult. Overcoming exclusion and injustice isn't easy, doesn't happen fast. Really celebrating diversity isn't just about pretty pictures of people coming together. Real justice takes more than our usual two sides arguments. We have to consider historic uses and abuses of power. Holy relationships ask us to listen, to listen to the still, small voices, and to choose sometimes to speak in small ways. Real healing asks us to know and name those who have been cast out. In the midst of it all, God invites us to see one another, to choose one another, and to listen. Jesus wants us to know, wants us to help one another know, we are not alone. Amen.